Hey everyone, and welcome back to Let's Talk Crime. This is going to be a two-parter. There's a lot of information here. There were two trials in this case, and a lot of text messages to go through. So let's get into it. Today we're going to talk about the Teresa Sievers case. Did this bright, beautiful doctor get into the mix of a burglary gone wrong, or was it something even darker? Teresa Sievers, born Teresa Tottenham in November of 1968 in Derby, Connecticut, became a well-known holistic medical practitioner in Bonita Springs, Florida. Prior to her life in Florida, Teresa was known as a hard worker with lots of spirit and was even valedictorian of her high school class in 1986. After high school, she immediately went to Fairfield University in Connecticut to study biology. Following her master's degree, she focused her studies on medicine. During her residency, she went to Florida, receiving an award for resident of the year. Then she moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where she met her first husband, Kenny Cousins, online. The two married in 2000, but divorced by 2003. They still kept in contact and remained friends, and Cousins states, quote, We were playing phone tag just two weeks before her death, unquote. Dr. Sievers returned to St. Pete, Florida, working in an outpatient clinic, but she felt she wasn't fulfilling her passion. She was only able to see each patient for about 15 minutes, and she didn't think they were receiving the proper care they deserved. Then, Teresa met Mark Sievers, a nurse at the time, and the two fell in love and got married. They had two daughters and moved to Bonita Springs to build a house and a life together. During this time, they also became business partners, establishing Teresa's own practice called Restorative Health and Healing Center, which focused more on holistic medicine than traditional practices. Teresa was responsible for taking patients, and Mark became the office manager to take care of their finances and scheduling. Teresa was known to be compassionate and caring, especially towards her community. At her practice, Teresa wasn't taking medical insurance, so her patients didn't have to worry about bills and finances. This idea really stemmed from her days at the clinic when Teresa was only given 15 minutes with her patients. Now at her own practice, she was able to give hours to her patients and create relationships. She was also involved in her church and became one of the most active volunteers there, working pro bono for members of the community who were homeless or disabled. Dr. Sievers was also the president of the board for Our Mother's Home, an organization to support teen mothers. Teresa shared her knowledge on YouTube recording videos talking about spiritual and energetic health. She was about to begin her own television show that she had already filmed two episodes of prior to her death. She was just becoming really successful at what she did, which was finding the root of her patients' problems internally so they could feel better physically. Many of Teresa's patients regarded Teresa very highly, One patient stated Dr. Sievers never allowed her to say, I'm never going to get better. She was able to convince non-believers of holistic medicine to join her in the journey of energetic and spiritual healing. 
I know I'm discussing a lot about Teresa's life, but I think it's so important to discuss who a victim was before their life ended, and Teresa deserves to be admired for her kindness and dedication. In June of 2015, Teresa, Mark, and their daughters were visiting Teresa's family in New Windsor, New York to celebrate Teresa's mom's birthday. The family rented a house on the lake from Friday, June 26th to Sunday, June 28th. During this time, the family celebrated, listened to music, and enjoyed their vacation. Teresa's sister, Anne, said it was hard for the entire family to get together because they were all scattered around the northeast area of the United States, and Teresa lived in Florida. But then, on Sunday, June 28, 2015, Teresa left the family vacation to go back to work in Florida while the family parted ways. This was the last time Teresa's family would ever see her alive. Mark and the girls planned to stay with Teresa's mother, Mary Ann, so they could see their cousins. Mark and the girls planned to stay until Wednesday in Connecticut while Teresa went back to Florida to go back to work. But when Teresa did not show up for work by 9 a.m. the next day, patients and co-workers grew worried. Teresa was never late for work. The employees at the practice made multiple calls to both Teresa and Mark to find out where she was. When Teresa did not answer her phone to anyone, including her husband, Mark, he grew concerned as well. Sandra Hoskins, a longtime medical assistant to Dr. Sievers, sent a text to Mark about Teresa's no-show. When she asked Mark if she could go to their house and check on Dr. Sievers, Mark said no, that Dr. Mark Petritus, a family friend, was going to check on Teresa. Mark Sievers called Dr. Mark Petritus around 9.30 a.m., but Dr. Petritus left his phone in the car while he went to get the mail at the post office on his way to work. When he got back in the car, he heard this voicemail from Mark Sievers. Hey, Mark. This is Mark. Um, I called yesterday just to check on you. Now I'm calling you today to see if you can check on Teresa. <laughs> it's, uh, I know it's early, 9.30 in the morning, and you're probably at work, and that's okay. Uh, Teresa's not at work yet. And the office is calling and texting, and we can't get through to Teresa. So I just thought maybe if you were not at work, you could possibly swing by the house. Um, and the garage code is 1313 enter, and the door opens up. Uh, anyway, if you get this message, great. Otherwise, I'll call my mom never come over and check on Teresa. Uh, maybe she's just sound asleep. It's just not like her. You know, in all the years, I've known her to be a half hour late for work and not answer her phone. Right. Actually, it's an answer the phone. It's kind of normal for me, but uh, not being late for work. All right, I'm rambling. I'll talk to you. Thanks, Mark. Dr. Petritus then called Mark back, kind of uncomfortable about walking into the Seavers' home unannounced, but he continued to drive to the house. He knocked on the door and called out for Teresa, but Teresa never answered the door. In the voicemail, we heard Mark give Dr. Petritus the garage passcode so he could go inside if he needed to. After a few knocks and calling out for Teresa, Dr. Petritus decided to enter the home through the garage using the passcode. When he went into the garage, he noticed the door into the home was opened. Going through the laundry room, right by the kitchen, Mark walked into a horrific scene.
911, what is your emergency? Uh, I'm at a friend's house. Uh, he's out of town, and I came here to check on the flight, and she's dead on the floor. Okay. Uh, the address okay. is... Okay, stay on the line. Oh, sir, hold on, yeah. stay on the line. Yes, yes. Okay. You're doing very well. Good job. Just yeah. a moment, we're going to connect you. They're going to ask yeah. for the address. MLSM Fire, what is the address of the emergency? Okay, and is that a house or an apartment, sir? The house. Tell me exactly what happened. Uh, my friend, uh, she's a doctor. Uh, I'm a doctor. Uh, she uh, came home uh, last night. Uh, her husband is in uh, Connecticut, and uh, she was supposed to go to work at 9 o'clock. She called me, and I was on my way to work, so I swung by, and she's dead on the floor. And there's a hammer at the side, and she's bashed in the back of the head. Stay on the line, Ricky. Um, Sheriff Officer, are you on the way? Yes, we are. Okay. All right, and so you said you're a doctor? Yes, I am. Okay, are you with her now? Uh, I'm outside of the house because I don't know if there's anybody in the house. Okay. All right, so how old is she? Uh, she's 50s. 50s. 47 ish. All right, sir, and is she awake? No, she's down on the floor. She's okay. cold. The back of her head is dashed in, and there's blood everywhere. Okay. All right. So I do have paramedics, fire department, also law enforcement is on the line with us. Okay, they're going to be going out, okay? Okay, um, okay. So I want you to stay on the line one moment. Sure yeah, I'm going to stay here until I get here because, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if they're still in the house. Okay. All right. Uh, what is right? I, uh, stay on the line. Okay, the sheriff's office has questions, and they're going to yeah. continue on what to do next. So okay, yes, sir, are you inside the residence then? No, I'm not. I'm standing in the driveway. Okay, and then when you walked inside the house, you said the blood was dry, or what did you say? Yeah, half the blood is dry, half is wet. And she's cold. She's dead cold. Okay, and there's a, the hammer sitting next to her, and you had left it, and yes. did you touch anything? No, I did not touch anything. I touched her. I shook her a little bit. Okay. And she had All right, one moment. You're doing really well. So the last time you had seen her is what time? Uh, probably two weeks, three weeks ago. Two or three weeks ago. Okay, and you said she returned today. Uh, I don't know when she came back, but she was supposed to go back. Uh, she was supposed to go to work today at nine o'clock. I knocked on the front door. And nobody answered. The lights were on. I could see her purses on the countertop, and she didn't answer. I pounded, pounded, and he gave me the key code to get into the garage door. I opened the garage door, and, and the door leading into it was open. One of the dogs ran out. I don't know if he left or not. And, uh, and I walked in. I just opened up the door. I walked in the door, and she was on the floor. And there was a big bash in the back of her head. Okay. Is the vehicle at her house or no? The vehicle is at her house, yes. In the garage, the garage door was closed. Okay, and when you left, did you left the same way you entered, or did you leave the front door? No, no, no. I just I I touched her and I just freaked out and I walked outside. Okay, when you walked outside, did you walk out the front door, or did you walk back out no, the garage door? Back out the garage door, and I um, I closed the door because the dogs were in there. Okay, and so the you were there because they asked you to take care of the house. Is that correct? Whatever. And he received a call from work saying she wasn't there? I, I, I don't know. Okay, that's fine. You know, he's, he's her office manager. Oh, she's the office manager of his business? No, he's the office manager. Okay. Yeah. And where is she right now? 
I believe he's in Connecticut. And you didn't see anything else? I mean, other than no, I didn't. I didn't go in okay. the house. I didn't. I'm afraid somebody's in the house. I mean, okay. somebody killed her. Right. I mean, it's a murder. Right. It's uh, she bashed in the back of the head. Okay. You know, I I can't see her falling or anything like that. I just right. I just looked and I thought, my God, you know, she's my friend. Right. Exactly. So, and you're doing a fantastic job. I'm sure they're going to have her a little bit further. Um, you know, more questions and everything for you. You're doing great. Okay. Okay. Oh, I did let them know that you're outside. The fire guys are, the fire guys are here. Okay, great. And, uh, go, let's go. Yeah, she's dead. On Monday, June 29, 2015, Teresa Sievers, who was only 46 at the time, was found dead, lying in a pool of blood in her kitchen with severe wounds to her head, with a hammer lying nearby her body. Later, the autopsy confirmed Teresa died from blunt force trauma. She had 17 indentations to her skull, along with many brutal skull fractures. Adam Hughes, a paramedic of Bonita Springs, described Teresa's injuries as, quote, incompatible with life, unquote. With nothing they could do, the paramedics left and homicide detectives of the Lee County Sheriff's Department arrived. Detective Jamie Nolan questioned Dr. Petritus about the scene he walked into and asked to search his car as well as take a DNA swap because he was the first person known to be at the scene. When police searched the exterior of the home, they found a door was broken with a crowbar nearby. Inside the home, Teresa's wallet was opened and on the floor, but it appeared nothing was stolen including $42,000 in cash left inside a safe. Detectives stated the home did not appear to be ransacked, though. The house was examined for about a week, but they found zero DNA evidence to link a possible suspect. Lee County Sheriff's deputies walked up and down nearby streets, trying to find any evidence they could, knocking on doors nearby to see if anyone saw anything suspicious or if neighbors had any video surveillance. But with no DNA, fingerprints, or evidence left behind, police in the community were left asking themselves, how did this happen? At first, it could have appeared to be a burglary gone wrong. As you can hear in the 911 call, Dr. Petritus was in fear that maybe someone was still in the house. Teresa and her family were gone days prior to her death, so maybe someone was staking out the house, took their chance to steal from a pretty wealthy-looking family, but were surprised to see Teresa in the kitchen. The couple lived off the Bonita Springs exit nearby a busy road. Their house was only two houses down from this busy road, and it was quite large, so it was pretty visible to anyone passing by. The couple had bought two lots of land while building their home, while their neighbors only had one plot of land, so it definitely stood out that they had some money. The Lee County Sheriff's Department also told residents to keep all doors and windows locked during a press conference after the brutal murder. This statement spiked fear with the Bonita Springs community about a psycho killer roaming around and burglarizing them. But then other theories began to circulate. Around this time, two other holistic doctors, Jeff Bradstreet and Louis Henendahl, were suspiciously found dead. 
news articles started reporting that a potential killer from the pharmaceutical industry was targeting holistic doctors, causing these deaths, because they were encouraging their patients not to take prescription drugs. Another theory was a potential patient or former patient of Dr. Sievers was involved. Teresa had plans to change the name of the practice from Restorative Health and Healing to open a partnership practice with Lanka Sviska to add Reiki into her patients' healing plans. At the time, Dr. Sievers wanted to see fewer patients to begin events and speeches, stating only you can fix you. Teresa's holistic ideas about energy healing often involved the stressful situations her patients were dealing with. She believed that the body's coping with stress would lead to physical pain. She would often tell her patients that they needed to essentially get rid of the thing that was causing them stress, whether it be a bad relationship, an unhealthy job, etc. It was totally possible a patient or someone close to a patient blamed Dr. Sievers if they lost a job or a significant other. Even Sandra Hoskins, who offered to check on Dr. Sievers, was thought to be the killer at one point. While Dr. Sievers was known to be a kind woman to her patients, some of her co-workers had different thoughts. She would often get angry and yell at her employees when her expectations weren't met. Teresa's sister actually accused Sandra in an interview with detectives stating that she was a bitch for bad-mouthing Dr. Sievers to other patients. Teresa previously asked Sandra to leave the practice because she wasn't bringing the right energy to fit her patients' needs. Sandra was also planning to hand in her resignation the day Dr. Sievers' body was discovered. Many of Teresa's family and co-workers thought Sandra Hoskins was the killer because they thought maybe she had a grudge against her for being mistreated and talked down to. In an interview with 48 Hours, Sandra had no idea of the accusations against her, and she wondered why she was receiving such hostile treatment at Teresa's funeral. I clearly haven't talked much about the husband, Mark Sievers, as a possible suspect, which is always my first guess. But family and police were not suspicious because Mark had an alibi. He was in Connecticut visiting Teresa's family, who corroborated this alibi along with airline tickets and surveillance footage at the airport. Mark told the police that they planned on leaving at separate times so Teresa could see her patients that Monday. But when she didn't come in, he was receiving texts and phone calls, so he asked a friend to check on Teresa. When Dr. Petritus told Mark to get home immediately, the family took an emergency flight back to Florida. When detectives asked if Mark knew anyone who would want to hurt Teresa, he claimed he had no idea. When detectives asked about their marriage, Mark admitted that Teresa and him often got on each other's nerves, but overall they had a good marriage. He denied any infidelity and said that they were working on rekindling their relationship. On July 1st, police interviewed Mark again as well as his mom, Bonnie Seavers, who was feeding the Seavers dog while they were away. Mark consented to have his phone downloaded and searched. 
when detectives again asked about the marriage because now they had his phone and would find out if he was lying. Mark confessed that the two had experimented with swinging in the past or having relationships outside of the marriage. They both had various partners during this time, but it was never a secret between the couple, according to Mark. When detectives asked if any of these partners could have wanted to hurt Teresa, he said all their relationships had ended on good terms. They also discussed Teresa's life insurance, and Mark said they both had around $2.5 million, but he wasn't sure of the exact amount. During the interview with Bonnie Seavers, Bonnie said that she went to the Seavers' home after they left for New York to feed the dogs, but the alarm was not activated. While that was unusual, she assumed they were in a hurry to get to their flight. Bonnie reactivated the alarm after she left that Friday evening, but later on Saturday, she struggled to turn it on again. She told detectives that Mark told her not to worry about it, and she didn't think twice because when she arrived, the alarm wasn't activated then either. Bonnie blamed herself a lot for Teresa's murder. She said if she had just reactivated the alarm, this would have never happened to her daughter-in-law. On July 7th, Mark Seavers hired a lawyer, criminal defense attorney Lee Hollander. When detectives attempted to speak with Mark again, Hollander told police that all questioning would have to be done through him. Detectives sent a list of questions over to Hollander for Mark to answer, but there was never any contact or cooperation again. Then, police received a tip on July 10th from a police officer in Illinois that changed the entire investigation. The Lee County Sheriff's Department got a call from Chief Hamilton of the Southern Illinois Airport Authority. Chief Hamilton claimed an acquaintance of his, later found to be Rose Runner according to Detective Michael Downs, had overheard information about Curtis Wayne Wright being in Florida at the time of the murder. So now we have Mark Seavers acting strange. You know, he's hired a defense lawyer and he's not cooperating anymore. And now we have a tip about some Curtis guy. So who is Curtis Wayne Wright? Known more commonly as Wayne, Wayne was the best friend of Mark Seavers. In fact, many people often commented about their resemblance, saying they look like twins or brothers, which they really do. They went to high school in Arnold, Missouri, and remained friends throughout their entire life. Mark was even Wayne's best man at his wedding just months before the murder. In high school, Wayne was very well-known and well-liked, even being the school's class president. After high school, he went to college to study technology, which he was really good at. But Wayne also may have had a dark side. According to a former friend, Greg Bolin, Wayne started using and producing drugs, specifically meth. He was eventually arrested for these crimes later in his life. But on July 8, 1996, Greg Boland's brother, Ronnie Bolin, suddenly went missing. According to Greg, Ronnie had just gotten a divorce that did not end well. Ronnie was a preacher, but he started questioning his faith after the divorce. 
Allegedly, Ronnie started using drugs with Wayne. During this time, Wayne owed Ronnie money, which may have resulted in an argument between the two. Ronnie's car was found at a car wash with the keys still in the ignition. Nobody has seen or heard from him since. Wayne has never been charged for Ronnie's disappearance, but he still remains a person of interest. The night Ronnie was last seen, Wayne told Bowen's father that he paid Ronnie the money he owed, had pizza, and went their separate ways. However, Wayne refused to talk to police, which made Greg question Wayne's involvement in his brother's disappearance. In 2011, Wayne was sent to jail for possession of meth as well as being involved in a meth lab and was sent to St. Genevieve County Jail in Missouri. Following his release, Wayne was in a car accident that caused a TBI as well as other physical injuries, so Wayne was unable to work. Despite Wayne's trouble, Mark Seavers and Wayne remained friends. Struggling financially, Mark offered Wayne a job at the Restorative Health and Healing Center, the practice owned by the Seavers, to be a tech support, mainly remotely in Missouri. Wayne only had to travel about two or three times to Florida to offer tech support, but Mark and Teresa would pay Wayne for any travel expenses needed. So now that we have an idea as to who Curtis Wainwright is and his relationship with Mark Seavers, Let's go back to the investigation. On July 10, 2015, Detectives Michael Downs and David Lebed of the Lee County Sheriff's Department met with Chief Hamilton and the informant in Illinois. In the court documents, the informant is listed as CTW, but Michael Downs gave the name Rose Runner in one of the trials. Rose said she, Angela Wright, who was Curtis Wayne's Wright wife, and Angela's mom, Kathy Moran, were together during the weekend Teresa was murdered. She said Angela was upset that her husband Wayne left on an unplanned trip to go to Florida to fix a computer at the Seaver's house. Angela said she wanted to go with Wayne, but he told her she couldn't this time. Wayne and Angela had just gotten married less than three months prior to this trip to Florida, so she was pretty upset especially with the fact that Wayne left his cell phone at home. When Wayne returned on Monday, June 29th, Angela told her mom Wayne was finally home after receiving a text. The next day, Wayne and Angela were told about the death of Teresa Seavers, so they went to Florida for the funeral to help their longtime friend, Mark Seavers. When Angela's mom found out about the murder while Wayne was in the same area at the same time, she started asking questions to Angela like, did Wayne ever fix the computer at the Seavers' house, implying that Wayne may have been involved because he was there. I mean, that's pretty coincidental. Angela told her mom, I never said he was going to their house, he was going to their business to fix the computer. Not believing this coincidence at all, Angela confided to her friend Rose about the possible involvement that Wayne may have had in Teresa's murder. Following the detective's trip to Illinois to talk with Rose, both Detective Downs and Lebed traveled to Hillsboro, Missouri to conduct a search warrant on the home of Wayne Wright the next day. During the search warrant, they first take note of a rental car in the driveway. 
Angela explained previously to her mother that they were using a rental car because of a prior car accident, so their vehicle was undrivable at the time. Wayne explained to the officers that they had rented two different cars, one which was following the accident and another one for a second trip to Florida for the funeral. When detectives looked into the first rental car rented on Wednesday, June 24, 2015, records showed that the total mileage was over 2,700 miles when it was returned shortly after the first trip to Florida by June 30th. Wayne stated that he was in bed all weekend from June 27th to June 29th, but detectives knew there was no way 2,700 miles could have possibly been put on the car without traveling a long distance, especially with Wayne's supposed alibi of staying in bed all weekend. Angela was at her mother's house without a car, so how could these miles just suddenly appear if neither of them drove? The detectives took DNA swabs from Wayne and continued to search the home. During this search, Detective Downs and Lebed seized a phone belonging to Wayne, as well as a Garmin GPS that will soon show a trip from Missouri to Florida. During an interview with Angela Wright, she said that Wayne was out of town, leaving Saturday, June 27, 2015, to go to Florida, calling out Wayne's lies to the police. But Wayne was adamant that he was in bed the entire weekend of Teresa's murder and that he never went to Florida. Detective Lebed called Wayne out on his lies, saying that he had seen the text messages between Mark Seavers and Wayne, specifically a text, quote, Hello, brother from an, in quotes, other mother, unquote. Sorry if that's confusing. But just a note about this text. The word another had quotation marks around the word other, not the whole word another, just other, like and quote other unquote. Sorry if that doesn't make much sense, but it's important. Lebet accused Wayne and Mark of using burner phones to communicate, saying he thinks Mark hired Wayne to kill his wife, Teresa. He also told Wayne he knew he was lying about spending the weekend in bed. According to his wife's statement, he did leave for Florida. When Detective Lebed accused Wayne and Mark again for conspiring to kill Teresa, Wayne told the detective, quote, I want to stop talking now, unquote. Detectives of the Lee County Sheriff's Office continued to speak with acquaintances of Wayne Wright. During an interview with one of Wayne's friends on July 15, 2015, Robert Weidman claimed Wayne said some pretty alarming statements about his prior arrest for running a meth lab in April of 2015. The two were drinking when Wayne told Robert that his roommate at the time of his arrest was the one who was running the meth lab while Wayne was out of town. When he got back, Wayne was arrested and the roommate blamed the meth lab entirely on him. Robert said that Wayne was so angry that this woman had taken, quote, five years of his life, unquote, so he found her and, quote, took her life, unquote, according to Robert. He remembers Wayne talking about strangling her and seeing the life come out of her eyes. Robert also admitted to giving Wayne Adderall when Wayne told his friend about an upcoming trip to Florida to fix some computers. Robert told Wayne he would have no trouble staying awake 
if he took this during his drive. Detectives also talked to Jimmy Ray Rogers after they saw fairly regular phone calls and text messages between Jimmy and Wayne. When Jimmy was brought in for a sworn statement, he refused to speak with police. Then, on Thursday, August 13, 2015, the police were analyzing and downloading information from the seized GPS found at Wayne's home. They found the email registered to the device was not Wayne, but Jimmy Ray Rogers. Analysts found that the deleted information from the GPS showed a trip from Wainwright's home to Jimmy Rogers' home between the hours of 7 and 8 a.m. on June 27th. Then, the GPS showed a search from Rogers' home in Missouri to the Seavers' home in Florida. On June 29, 2015, at 12.44 a.m., over an hour after Teresa got home, the GPS shows a trip from the Seavers' home to a rest stop. On June 27, 2015, at 6.44 a.m., cell phone records show Jimmy sent a text to Wayne, quote, What time are you getting here? Unquote. Wayne responds, quote, About 7.30, unquote. Jimmy Ray Rogers, another Missouri native, did not have the best life. He was always known to be troubled as neighbors describe him being a little too obsessed with guns and knives at a young age. Both his parents died by the time Rogers was 16 years old and he was primarily raised by his older brother. His mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia when Jimmy was still a child. She was hospitalized a lot of the time, and Jimmy's brother states they had two very different childhoods. Jimmy's mom was constantly drinking and abusing drugs. Eventually, their mother committed suicide. After his mother's death, his father started to emotionally abuse Jimmy. He would tell Jimmy to kill himself like his mother did and be more like his older brother. I'm not excusing Jimmy's actions and the things he did, but again, I think it's important to look at the events in a person's life that could have contributed to the way they are now. Jimmy was also known for telling extravagant stories about crimes he committed, even giving himself a nickname called the Hammer. Coincidence? Rogers was also no stranger to the law. He was also sent to St. Genevieve County Jail in 2010 for possession of a firearm as a felon. As you may recall, Wayne was also sent to St. Genevieve County Jail, and they both spent time with each other throughout their jail sentences. After jail, Jimmy and Wayne stayed in touch and started working for a contracting company together. When Jimmy Rogers was questioned by Detective Lebed about the GPS and Rogers' relationship with Wayne Wright, he claimed he didn't talk to Wayne Wright at all and was never in Florida, which conflicted with the text messages between Wayne and Jimmy, as well as the video surveillance footage. On August 24, 2015, after reviewing the GPS locations, surveillance footage placed Jimmy Rogers along with Wayne Wright at a Walmart in Fort Myers, Florida. During this Walmart trip, the two are seen buying wet wipes, 30-gallon trash bags, a lockpick set, black shoes, water shoes, black towels, a red Budweiser shirt, a black backpack, and some other clothing items. 
Two other gas station surveillance footage also clearly shows the two, and these surveillance footage timestamps align perfectly with the GPS timestamps and locations. There was no possible way both Wayne and Rogers weren't together in Florida, let alone never spoke to each other, as Rogers previously told Detective Levitt. At the time of the trip to Florida, Rogers was on probation, so he was not supposed to leave the state of Missouri legally. When Rogers met with his probation officer, as well as Detective Downs and Lebed, Rogers continued to lie about his trip to Florida. When Rogers was told he was no longer allowed to contact Wayne Wright, he continued to say they never even spoke. But because of the surveillance footage of Rogers in Florida, he was arrested for violating his probation order, and detectives proceeded with a search warrant of his home. Upon the search of Rogers' home, Detective Downs and Lebed were met by Rogers' girlfriend, Taylor Showmaker. During a conversation between Detective Downs and Taylor, Downs told Rogers' girlfriend that if she knew anything or had any involvement in the murder of Teresa Severs, it's best to come forward now. Taylor then led detectives to a red Budweiser shirt, a white cooler, and a black backpack. When asked about the purpose of the white cooler and black backpack in a later sworn statement by Taylor, she said Jimmy had left for a business trip to Florida with Jimmy's friend Wayne. Jimmy supposedly said that he was going to make around $10,000 from this trip. Taylor told the detectives he left early Friday morning to Monday, June 29th. Taylor corroborated the text messages between Wayne and Jimmy from that morning by stating that Jimmy left around 7.30. Taylor stated that she was with her mother while Jimmy was away because she didn't live in a good area and she had young children. When Jimmy returned from his trip to Florida, he was wearing a red Budweiser shirt that Taylor had never seen before and brought a white cooler and black backpack into the kitchen. Inside the white cooler, Taylor told police she saw a roll of duct tape, blue latex gloves, black shoes, and a hammer. In the black book bag, she only saw a blue jumpsuit that he used for work. Later, Jimmy asked Taylor to help him get rid of the blue jumpsuit as well as a phone. During the search warrant, Taylor brought Detective Downs to where the jumpsuit was disposed of on the side of a road, as well as a broken cell phone nearby Jimmy's workplace. Taylor also told detectives that when Wayne's house was searched, Jimmy started acting really strange. He threw out a tourist shirt from Fort Myers, Florida, and the black shoes in a dumpster in Cadet, Missouri. Following this search warrant, Taylor talked to Jimmy about what was going on. She knew about the murder of Teresa Severs through the detectives and just asked Jimmy if he did it. Did you ever talk about his trip again after that before I came to talk to you? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me what you talked about? I, I don't remember when. Mm -hmm. It was after you guys came, and I told him that I knew that he had something to do with it. Okay. And then he, and then he started asking me questions like, "What do I know about?" And I'm like, "Well, I know you went down there to kill somebody." 
And then he said, yeah. And then um, I, I took a guess at Mark's wife. And then he said, yeah. And you're saying, when you said Mark's wife, you're talking about Teresa Sievers, the doctor that was killed? Yes. Okay. And then um, I said, did you shoot her? And he said, no. And I said, then how did you kill her? And he made a stupid little chuckle that he does and then said, with a hammer. He said, with a hammer? Yeah. Okay. And what else did he tell you about that? That's it. You guys didn't have any other conversation about it? Okay. I got scared after that. And I, I definitely understand that. that. Um, so basically from the time that he got home from Florida to the time that I talked to you, you didn't know really why he went down there. Mm -hmm. But then when um, Sergeant Levitt and myself came to talk to you that day and told you why we were there, mm -hmm. did you kind of figure that's why he was down there? Or? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I, I pretty much told him that I knew that was the reason I, you know, then he admitted it to me. After the search warrant and the statement given by Taylor, Detective Michael Downs and David Levitt went to see Jimmy Rogers in jail to tell him they were now able to charge him with the crimes in Florida. When the two detectives met Jimmy at a holding center, Jimmy was yelling at the detectives, screaming at them, asking why they were there, that he didn't want to talk to them, but then asking what his charges were. When Detective Levitt responded to Jimmy, telling him to calm down, he told Jimmy that he was going to be charged with second-degree murder. Jimmy definitely responded in an odd way, and to me, it was an admission of guilt. His response was, quote, Well, in the state of Missouri, that's 15 to 20 years, and I'm okay with that, unquote. After this, he refused to talk anymore with detectives. Two days after the arrest of Jimmy Ray Rogers, August 27, 2015, Curtis Wayne Wright was arrested during a traffic stop. After being informed that he had a warrant out for his arrest in regards to the murder of Teresa Sievers, Wayne was seen driving at high speeds, possibly trying to flee. Wayne was transported to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office for another interview regarding the murder of Teresa Sievers. He continued to state that he was at home, despite being shown surveillance footage of him and Rogers in Florida. During this interview with Wayne, Detective Levitt began providing more suggestions about Mark Sievers hiring Wayne to kill his wife due to marital problems. Wayne denied that Mark and he talked about stuff like that. But as months go by with Wayne in jail, on January 6, 2016, Wayne agreed to a proffer agreement that would lead to a plea deal negotiation, claiming Mark Sievers did in fact hire him to kill his wife, Teresa. A proffer agreement is a written agreement between prosecutors and suspects that allows suspects to tell police about their knowledge of crimes, with a promise that their word will not be used against them in later proceedings. Prior to this proffer agreement, Wayne had given many different statements, such as, I wasn't in the house when Teresa was killed, and then I was in the house but I didn't see the murder because Jimmy did it, but finally, Wayne met with his lawyer and told Detective Michael Downs and state prosecutors Ahmed Hunter and Elizabeth Parker that he was the one who initiated the murder by striking Teresa Sievers a couple of times over the head with a hammer. He said that he and Mark Sievers never talked about a set amount of money. On February 19, 2016, 
Wayne signed the plea agreement to testify against Mark Seavers in exchange for 25 years on second-degree murder. He admitted to hitting Teresa over the head only two or three times because he had problems with his shoulders. He also admits that Mark requested for Wayne to kill his wife, Teresa, in order to save the girls from danger. The police finally had an official admission from Curtis Wayne Wright that Mark Seavers had hired someone else to kill his wife while he and the girls were far away on a family trip. With her family. Like, it wasn't even your own family. You were literally with her family as you knew that your wife was going to be killed. We will discuss more about Wayne Wright's full testimony about the weekend of Teresa Seaver's murder, as well as the weeks and months, and even the aftermath, as we talk about the trial of Mark Seavers and Jimmy Ray Rogers. Since Wayne took a plea deal to testify against Mark Seavers, he did not have a trial of his own. But that's where we're going to stop for today. In part two, we're going to find out if Mark Seavers and Jimmy Ray Rogers are actually guilty or if Wayne Wright is trying to save himself by throwing his friends under the bus. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Crime, and I'll see you next time.